In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Now, what Amos chapter 9 is pointing to is very important, but so is this. My great friend, a member of my Bridgetown community, Reese Penny Sunberg, is seven years old today. Happy birthday, Reese. Sometimes you make impulsive commitments to six-year-olds on Friday nights that you have to hold to on Sunday mornings. So dear Lord, would you take Amos chapter nine and would you help us to see it that we might inhabit it and maybe even become it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey man, do you want another seltzer? So I look up at this bartender and I've got tear tracks staining my cheeks. It's a Monday night in February in New York City. I was looking for a place to read at 9.30 p.m. The options were quite limited. That's how I end up sitting alone at the bar of this Irish pub. It's one of those pubs where everything is perpetually sticky and the only playlist they've got is alt-rock from the late 90s. And so, just me and this one other guy in the whole place, Matchbox 20 is serenading both of us. And the bartender is really motivated to keep the fizzy waters coming. Hey man, you want another seltzer? So I look up from my open Bible with tears streaming down my face. No, I'm good. And he kept his distance after that. Honestly, I get it. This is not typical Irish pub behavior. (laughs) But all the dots were connecting for me right then and there in that place. The the way this mostly, or, or this ancient promise from a mostly forgotten Old Testament prophet named Amos pulls at the whole biblical story from either end. I could see it, and it moved me to tears. So last week we began a vision series in practice that is gonna direct our steps together over the next year, a house of prayer for all nations. You might recognize that as the phrase behind Jesus' cleansing of the temple. It's a dramatic act of both prayer and justice, joining the two together inseparably in the biblical understanding. It's a phrase uh, from the prophet Isaiah that then is quoted from Jesus in the four gospels. And so we're spending the fall breaking that famous phrase into three parts, a house. That's where we started last week. Just remembering our unique identity as a house, practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland. For the next five weeks, we'll focus in on of prayer, stepping deeper into the bottomless well of intimacy with God through prayer, and then the subsequent five weeks for all nations, exploring and practicing what it means to be shaped by that intimacy with Jesus, to go out into our city on mission the Jesus way. So today, I'm going to offer us a biblical foundation that we can stand on in the weeks ahead, a biblical picture that I'm hoping we can find ourselves in that would paint Jesus' collective invitation to us as a community as we take a next step on the journey of discipleship. And for that, we turn to Amos. Hey man, want another seltzer? So there I am, crying in the sticky bar of a grungy, dimly lit Irish pub, being serenaded by Rob Thomas. 
because I could see this story so vividly and I could hear Amos' promise spoken so personally. It was less like a story and more like an invitation, like a biblical picture that could be inhabited until Amos' promise had become the reality around me, maybe around us. And so today I just wanna offer you that story. Jesus went into Jerusalem looking like a foolish king to reestablish prayer, but he wasn't the first. Thousands of years before Jesus, David went into that same city to approach that same temple or tabernacle in his language to reestablish prayer. So I wanna give you the story of prayer that every last one of us is immersed in, even those who would scoff at that notion. The statistics continue to decline when it comes to church interest and attendance all across the Western world, but at the same time, the interest in prayer is moving in the opposite direction. In Western Europe, which is broadly considered to be the most secularized portion of the globe today, 25% of the people who bubble in non-religious on national surveys also admit that they take part in some spiritual activity each month, typically prayer. So even in an anti-authoritarian, institutionally suspicious, spiritually dismissive, emotionally cold city like Portland, the very people laughing off and condemning the church as harmful or problematic still can't help but talk to God when no one else is listening. Neil McGregor, the former director of the British Museum, wrote a book on historic spirituality titled Living with the Gods, in which his thesis was this, 300 years after the Enlightenment, the world is, if anything, becoming more religious, not less. The story of prayer that David lived and Amos prophesied and then Jesus fulfilled that lives in the heart of every person of every religious persuasion in every historical era and lives in your heart right now, even if you don't know it yet. That's what I wanna offer you today. Raise up the tabernacle of David, that's the title. And I'll give it to you in three chapters. The story, the larger story, and the ongoing story. So the story itself technically begins all the way back in Genesis chapter one with heaven and earth and God and humanity being in perfect union. Conflict then enters with sin, creating separation in that union, and redemption begins on Mount Sinai when God selects a people, Israel, to house his presence, to become the container that he can refill that union with, again, beginning with a tent that was constructed under the direction of Moses where God will dwell with his people. But for the sake of time, I'm just gonna jump right into the climactic scene of that story, which is found in 2 Samuel chapter six. Read along with me, this will be on the screen. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. Now, exactly seven years prior to that moment that we just read, David was anointed as the king of Israel. His pathway to occupy that royal throne was unconventional to say the least. The previous king, Saul, his predecessor, saw him as such a threat that he hunted him from village to village attempting to kill him, which is one way to eliminate the political competition. Finally, after Saul's death, David is anointed king, but then Ishbosheth, one of Saul's sons, 
occupies the palace by force, surrounds it with a militia, and essentially holds himself in the, uh, or as the royalty of the kingdom that never wanted him in the first place for seven years. Seven years. That's plenty of time to daydream about your royal entrance into the city when the day finally rolls around. It's plenty of time to plot your political strategy. And that's what makes David's entrance so shocking. His long-awaited royal parade, his coronation day, his triumphal entry, if you will. And it was jaw-dropping for at least these four reasons. What he's singing, what he's wearing, what he's doing, and where he's going. So first, uh, there's no doubt that people would have heard him coming long before they actually saw the parade. An entire army was marching and singing a song that David himself had composed just for this occasion. The lyrics to that song are in our Bibles. We call it Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Now that sounds about right for a royal parade, doesn't it? The, The lyrics are fitting for a moment like this one. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Whoa, wait, wait. What? David isn't the king of glory? I thought this was his big moment. Uh, Am I hearing this right? Now, David's an experienced songwriter, and this is the chorus. He knows what he's doing, so he repeats this part. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. David enters to a song of praise, but it's not, it's not, he is not the king that song is praising. The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. It's subversive. And of course, about that time, this march would have crested the hill, and all those who had gathered to welcome in their wanted king would have finally seen the parade that they had heard coming as it crested the hill and marched down toward Jerusalem. The onlooking crowd would have expected to see a long line of soldiers and and magicians with the king carried at the very back of the parade on the ancient equivalent to a parade float, sitting on a throne wrapped in royal robes and a crown. That's how Saul likely came in. Uh, That's what they were waiting to see. What they actually saw was David, their new king, at the front of the parade wearing a linen ephod, and he's dancing. Now, a linen ephod, that's the outfit that David chose for his big day, not royal robes and a crown. An ephod was a priestly garment, not a royal one. And, And it wasn't the dignified outer robe of a priest either. It was a priest's undergarment. So David is symbolically saying, in a language that everyone in the crowd could understand, I'm not a king who's coming to sit on a throne, I'm a priest who's coming to lead you into God's presence, but I'm the least of all the priests, not qualified to even be dressed in the tassels and the outer garments. Here comes the new king, David, singing a song of praise to God, and he's dancing at the front of the parade in a priest's underwear. It's foolish but it's a holy kind of foolishness. There is a float at the back of this parade, but instead of David sitting on it on a throne, it's holding the Ark of the Covenant. 
Now the story goes this way, the ark was this sacred wooden box that Israel carried through the desert during the Exodus. It symbolized God's presence there with his people. This box was the intersection between heaven and earth. When Israel took the promised land, they carried the ark through the Jordan River before they walked, and it was the ark that the rivers passed for so that they could come behind. Then, uh, when things got comfortable, King Saul left that ark in a, fallen, in a foreign field. That tends to be what we do with God when things get comfortable. We forget him and leave him behind when our need is less apparent. David hunted down that ark, placed it on the throne. God, the true king, is at the seat of honor. David, the dancing priest, celebrating the return of God's presence to his people. So every jaw is on the ground as David's making his way down Broadway. When he gets to the town square, though, he doesn't enter the palace. That's not the destination of this parade. David's had a tent set up right at the city center, a tent in the form of Moses' tent of meeting, where Israel's most famous deliverer was said to speak face-to-face with God as one speaks to a friend. It's a prayer tent, and David takes the ark, the presence of God, and restores it to the very center of the city and names that tent a tabernacle. Now, the English tabernacle is the Hebrew sukkah, which appears all over the Old Testament. It means a booth or a shelter, but it's typically an unimpressive shelter. It's like what we would call a camping tent today. In fact, that's exactly how the NIV translates it into English, both in 2 Samuel 6 and then in, later in Amos chapter 9. So we are not talking here about restoring the temple in all of its glory. We're not even talking about some edgy and subversive plan. David's big idea, the culmination of seven years of waiting and scheming and dreaming and planning was this. What if we pitched a tent? Uh, like a tent where anyone and everyone can come and worship and pray. Nothing fancy, just a common space right at the center of the city for prayer. Now, when a new president gets elected, they typically have a first order of business, right? They have an initiative that they've been promising to their supporters, something that they want to implement right away that's going to come and define their legacy. David's very first act on his very first day as Israel's king was to reconstruct Moses' tent of meeting at the city center. And if that's just a symbol, if it's just a way to honor a great ancient deliverer and his legacy in the city, then it's beautiful and everyone celebrates it. But if it's more, if it's more than a symbol, then it's a statement of value and it's a threat to the status quo that the city has become comfortable in. And for David, it was a whole lot more than a symbol. It was a statement of value and it was a threat to the status quo. After his entrance, David entered the palace and he sat down with his board of advisors and he laid out the specifics of his plan. He hired 292 worship leaders, prophets, and elders to pray and worship in that tent. That's 1 Chronicles 25 if you want to go back and give it a fact check. Did you get that? He's a king leading a military during an era of tribal warfare and he just emptied the national savings account on prayer. Can you imagine the cabinet meeting where he laid out his political strategy. Dave, love what you're thinking about the prayer thing, man. (laughs) But we might wanna beef up our defenses against the enemies camping in the hill country, and you wanna spend everything on prayer? Yep, that's exactly it. And then he did it. David Fritsch says the presence of God was David's political strategy. 
And for the 33 years of David's reign as Israel's king, there was tabernacle worship and prayer at the center of the city. Now there's no way for us to know this with 100% certainty, but many scholars argue that it was night and day prayer that went on throughout David's reign. A 24-7 expression of prayer that never stopped. So the original prayer room was in Jerusalem sometime around 993 BC. Now in Moses' tent and in the temple structure that would come later and, and run through the prophets all the way up to the arrival of Jesus, there was restricted access to God's presence. There was a series of gates and restrictions and then there was a curtain that only the high priest could cross and only once a year to enter the presence of God. David's tabernacle though is a three decade anomaly where access to God's presence was unveiled. It was granted equally to everyone who stepped in. No qualifications or restrictions. All are invited in as equals to one family. The 33-year reign of David as king over Israel is the only time in Old Testament history where there is no restricted access to God's presence. That's a theme that is traced by the scholars G.K. Beale and Mitchell Kim in their book, God Dwells Among Us. Another author calls David's tabernacle a New Testament reality in an Old Testament world. You see, the scandal of this prayer tent was that it became a gateway to justice, reconciliation, and kinship. It became a preview of the new family that would be inaugurated by Jesus in his resurrection when he was the first in a line of new humanity born into the world. A good chunk of the Psalms get traced back to this prayer tent, like the prayers that taught Israel how to pray for generations, which even Jesus himself observed and then taught his disciples how to pray with. They came because uh, David's prayer movement started. The songs that the Hebrew people praised by, uh, that modern evangelical songwriters still reach back to, draw from, and add melody to, were recorded by scribes crouched in corners of the temple, scribbling out the prayers of the people on their journals. A number of the messianic prophecies, meaning the words that revealed Jesus as the promised Son of God, are traced back to this prayer tent. All to say, this is not a non-stop worship service with a bunch of spiritual hype and well-wishing and empty promises. These were people that were accidentally unfolding the redemption plan of God. A redemption plan that was so subversive that the very priests who memorized the prophecies about them still did not recognize God's redemption plan as it unfolded through Jesus right before their eyes. Jesus would go on to quote the Psalms more than any other Old Testament book uh, as the explanation for who he was and what his ministry was about. The prayers of David became the formula for recognizing Jesus. A whole nation watched as their most revered political leader enjoyed the presence of God, first in a dramatic spectacle and then in a sustainable practiced rhythm over the course of over three decades as he oversaw the kingdom. Think of how that would shape your view of God if you took up residence in that city. Here was David's jaw-dropping first move. Put prayer back at the center of God's people. And that is either the most beautiful move a king could make or the most ridiculous, depending on if you lean more poet or pragmatist. So just as a nod to the pragmatists who are among us, the activity in that tent was a good thing. But what happened when the, the activity of that tent spilled into the city was even better. You know, one of the most interesting things about Amos is prophecy. Uh, which we read from in our teaching text, is that it seems woefully out of place if you read the whole of the book of Amos. 
Because Amos is a prophet who lived at a time when uh, it was a pretty good to be an Israelite. The economy was strong, there was safety in the city. Uh, if you were born into the right class, at least, you could work your way into a sustainable living and a comfortable life for your family. And Amos has this rebuke that during a time of peace and comfort, Israel has praised God but forgotten the poor. And so for eight chapters, he's beating a drum that goes something like, you're going to the temple and you're singing worship songs and offering sacrifices and praying prayers, but you have compartmentalized your spirituality so that you have rituals within the temple and you've forgotten the poor outside who are struggling. He goes so far as to promise that because you have forgotten the poor, God will drive you into exile. It's that important to him to rejoin a holistic version of following Jesus together. But then in Amos chapter 9, the, the final chapter in the book, he makes another promise. In that day, I will, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. And we will rebuild it as it used to be. Now, wait a minute. Hasn't this whole thing been about the fact that prayer and worship gatherings we've been observing in the temple were hollow without justice for the poor? Why on earth would the reestablishment of a prayer tent be the solution or the antidote to that diagnosis? Well, because David's tabernacle was the beginning of a biblical pattern, that the most powerful prayer is the incarnated prayer. And the powerful thing about David's tabernacle is that the prayers prayed inside were incarnated as people left and went outside. Mother Teresa, all the way up to her deathbed, she refused to be called a social justice warrior or an activist. She said that both her and the order that she founded, who served the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, were nothing more than contemplatives in the heart of the world. She described her ministry this way, our mission is only and entirely to minister to Jesus, which we do primarily through prayer and worship. That sounds a whole lot like David's tabernacle. Secondarily, we go on ministering to Jesus by recognizing the face of Jesus in the faces of the poor and lost and caring for them. So we're gonna explore this theme so much deeper in the weeks to come, but I bring that up just to say like, look, if the poetry of the moment's not doing it for you, you should know that pragmatically speaking, David's political strategy, a radical commitment to prayer and presence, worked like nothing has before or since in Hebrew history. David's very unconventional reign as king is the political high point of ancient Israel any way you want to measure it. There was unparalleled peace and safety in the city during his reign. There was unparalleled prosperity in the economy and care for the poor and a justice system that brought about equity and a divided kingdom was mended and reunified. David Fritsch says, through night and day worship and prayer, David established a place of continual agreement with the will of God in the earth. David knew they weren't just singing songs, but were building a throne and habitation for the king of kings to rule the land again. You see, that's why Amos says a praying people is the kingdom response to a city of injustice that's in desperate need. And if this was, more than, if this was nothing more than a dramatic gesture by a romantic king, then it tells us something about David about the passion that it's in his heart and the way that he expresses it into the world. But if it is more than that, if it actually did rip a channel between heaven and earth, where the kingdom of God was able to pour out among a common people in a significant way that affected every last person, even those who never stepped foot in the tent itself, then it doesn't tell us so much about David, it tells us something about God. It tells us that presence might have been David's strategy, but prayer is God's strategy. 
The pattern that emerges from David's tabernacle is this one. Prioritize prayer in the church, and you get the kingdom in the city. So I've got this dream for the church. It's prayer right back at the center of God's people. I dream about a people who have spent so much time with the Lord in prayer that his presence has become as real to them as this podium is to me. Uh, People who always start with prayer and always end in mission, who gather together for worship and then scatter, continuing to pray by recognizing the face of Jesus in the faces of our neighbors and coworkers and family members and friends and the strangers we pass by on the street. That's what I dream for the church. But the, the modern church's best kept secret is this one, that we believe in productivity, not prayer. Right, we have a formula for success, right? Solid programs, above average teaching, and another worship album. There's probably a less cynical way to say that, right? Maybe we believe in mission, activism, and outreach. But either way, the hidden atheism of the church in our time is this, that we will busy ourselves with almost anything except prayer. And the biblical invitation awaiting a church like ours at a time like this is this, prioritize prayer in the church, and you'll get kingdom in the city. That's the story. And that's why even though we live in a world with AC and heat inside of all of our buildings and we've got endless entertainment available to us just in our pockets and we now know a way to travel to Taiwan by this time tomorrow, we still haven't gotten over this ancient invitation called prayer. However much progress we make, however sophisticated and distracted we might become, a fire still burns in us for God's presence. David is just one guy that let that fire consume him. That's the story. And you've got to admit, it's a pretty good story. Hey, man, you want another seltzer? So there I am, tears in my eyes in that Irish pub. The gorgeous melodies of Rob Thomas filling the room. And I'm dreaming of David's prayer tent. And so I got up from that place and I wandered around the streets outside and I said, oh God, would you raise up David's tabernacle in my time? Do you raise up David's tabernacle in me? Do you raise up David's tabernacle in us until it spills into the streets of the city the way it did back then? And that brings us to chapter two, the larger story. So I wanna pick up just a few verses from where we left off. This is 2 Samuel chapter seven, the very next chapter. God makes a promise to David. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So there's a promise that God makes to David that the kingdom he has inaugurated through this foolish insistence on, on prayer will never end. It's a permanent kingdom. Then shortly after his death, David's tent was turned into a brick and mortar temple. It seemed like a giant step forward, and for much of a good chunk of time, it was. In both Exodus 40 and 1 Kings 8, God's presence is depicted as a cloud, filling uh, first the tabernacle and then later the temple, which is just a term for more of a, like a permanent construction of the tabernacle. It's this beautiful depiction of God taking up residence with his people. But as beautiful as it is, there's an equally tragic image that comes about later if we just keep reading the same story. Ezekiel chapter 10 says, and a cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. So to to offer a little bit of translation here, the same cloud that represented God's presence that filled the temple now in Ezekiel's vision is getting up from the innermost room of the temple and moving toward the exit. Skip down to verse 18 of the same chapter. Then the glory of the Lord departed 
from over the threshold of the temple. So the temple's still going. It's going quite well, actually. Attendance is high. The budget's looking good. There's tons of activity. There's just this one problem. God has left the building, and no one seems to notice. Documented on the pages of Scripture, we've got a tent where the presence of God was so alive it spilled into the, into the streets outside, and we're clearly shown that there is a way of doing church that keeps up all the appearances of success, and yet God can be entirely absent. So what happened to God's promise to be present? I thought David's throne was permanent, one that would never end. Well, remember Amos' promise. A day's coming when I'm gonna rebuild David's tabernacle. A promise that's waiting not on a building, but on a person. This is a longing for another king, one in the line of David, one who will come as foolishly as David did to reestablish all that's been discarded. In an era of comfort, Saul abandoned the Ark of the Covenant and carried on with business as usual apart from God. Now in a new era of comfort, the priests are carrying on with church services and readings and prayers. It's all business as usual apart from the presence of God and no one seems to notice, almost no one at least. There is this one guy named Amos who says this is a watered down and diluted version of what we've been given but he will send one who will give us back the purity and the potency of the real thing. That brings us to the life of Jesus. This is John chapter one. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Now this term dwelling, it's the ancient Greek skenoo, which translates tabernacle. In fact, the most direct translation of this very verse is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Here's the Old Testament pattern. Build a tabernacle and then God fills it with his glory, with his presence. John describes Jesus as a tabernacle filled with God's glory, with his presence. The glory of God that filled the tabernacle in ancient times has now filled the very body of Jesus. He is the living, breathing, walking, talking tabernacle. Jesus is David's tent with two legs. That's John 1. Now notice how Jesus' birth is described similarly by all the other gospel writers who are making this same connection. Matthew chapter one. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Luke chapter one. He will be great and will be called son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Even when the crowds began to recognize Jesus through his ministry, they connected the very same dots. Matthew 12, all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Seven days after his death, Jesus came into Jerusalem as king, just like David did. It's another triumphal entry. And this one was jaw-dropping for the exact list of reasons the last one was. What he's singing, what he's wearing, what he's doing, and where he's going. David's army sang Psalm 24, a praise anthem. And at Jesus' entry, the crowds on the road chant, began to chant, Hosanna, which is a political statement to the son of David. Uh, the crowds are crowning a new king, this king in the line of David. Uh, then David wore a priest's undergarment. Jesus is a king disguised in peasant's rags. With a, uh, his red carpet is palm fronds and the shirts off people's backs. Uh, David entered not on a throne at the back of a parade, but at the front dancing like a holy fool. Jesus enters not on a throne at the back of a parade, but on, the, on a colt fit for a toddler. 
his feet dragging the ground as a horse half his weight tries to carry him into the city. Here comes the new king looking like a fool. But it's a holy kind of foolishness. Is this beginning to look familiar? It should. I mean, I know that it's 87 degrees in here. (laughs) But hang in there. Because then there's the destination of each parade. David marched the ark, the presence of God, straight into the empty tabernacle. Jesus marched his body, the presence of God, straight into the empty temple, a temple that was crowded with everything except God's presence, and said, my house will be called a house of prayer. See, David unveiled God's presence, granting all people equal access to God. His his tabernacle had no gates, no restrictions, no qualifications. Jesus marches into a temple that's got all kinds of gated restrictions and qualifications, and notice what happens. He, He restores the rejected with his entrance. Matthew chapter 21. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. That's the famous bit. Don't miss the very next verse. The blind and lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. When was the last time the blind and lame could step foot across the threshold of the temple? It was David's tabernacle. At David's tent, everyone was invited in. In Jesus' house of prayer, everyone's invited in. And what Jesus started in that dramatic moment, he finished seven days later with his crucifixion when the temple curtain was torn top to bottom and the symbolism was obvious. Everyone. That's who's welcome in my Father's house. There is no house of prayer that does not also become a house of reconciliation. And so the rejected step back in, not after they're healed, but before in their current condition because it's the Father's welcome that heals them, not the other way around. When all the disciples saw this, look what came to their minds. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's Psalm 69, a prayer written by David. They saw Jesus' entrance to the simple, to to the, wow. They saw Jesus' entrance to the city his restoration of the temple, and they connected the dots. They remembered David's tabernacle. David reigned for 33 years. Jesus lived for 33 years before his crucifixion, and the resurrected King Jesus reigns forever. He is the tabernacle of David. David's first move as king was to put prayer back at the center of everything. When Jesus finally, after resisting throughout his whole ministry, let them recognize him as king just for a moment, what did he do? He put prayer right back at the center of the house. Now many stop there, but we can't stop there. Because if we stop there, this is an amazing story about a building. And this is not a story about a building. So there's one more chapter, and this is the one that we're living in right now, the ongoing story. The three synoptic gospels, meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record the story of Jesus' triumphal entry and his temple cleansing. And they also, all three, record the story of what we call the transfiguration. That's when Jesus took his three closest disciples up on a mountain and he began to glow physically in all of his heavenly glory. Moses and Elijah showed up just to kind of celebrate the moment and the voice of the Father God broke out audibly over all who were there at the mountain at the peak. Now, it was a spectacular moment, but Peter, God bless him. This guy's always just 
jumping a moment too soon. I can so relate. But, but Peter speaks up just before the voice of God the Father could to offer a suggestion. Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Mark includes this in parentheses. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. (laughs) So what's interesting here is he says, let us put up three shelters. That English word shelters, it's the Greek skinoo, which as we've already talked about means tabernacle or tent. Peter's done his homework. He's making the logical suggestion. When God's presence has come like this before, we've built a tabernacle for him to dwell in. Peter's thinking about a building. But Jesus' plan is so much closer than a building. John's gospel includes this critical line that the others leave out at the temple cleansing. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. Now, he said that while he was standing on the Temple Mount, one of the great architectural wonders of the world, which has taken over two generations to construct. The priests are offended because they think he's talking about the building, but John tells us, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. If you keep turning forward in the biblical story, you'll come to the letter of 1 Corinthians. That's a letter written to a church like this one and to people like us. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 includes this. Don't you know that you, now this is the plural you. In ancient Greek, there's more than one form of the word you. There's one that refers to an individual person, another one that refers to a group of people. We don't have that in English. We only have uh, the singular you, and then you've got to kind of figure it out through context, which I imagine is why the South invented y'all, to fill the gap, right? So don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. The claim is there's still a tabernacle. There's still a place where God's glory dwells. It's you. You, it's y'all. It's in the gathered church. It's, It's not the building, it's the collective lives of Jesus' followers. But then it gets even closer than that. If you keep on reading, you get to chapter six of the same letter. Do you not know that your bodies, now this time it's singular, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you individually, who you have received from God? We are the dwelling place of God and you are the dwelling place of God. You see, in the end, this is not about a tent or a building. In the end, this is about people. Jesus was not cleansing the temple because he wanted the building tidied up. It was because he wanted intimacy with his people back. This is the restoration of all that was lost on the first page. My house will be called a house of prayer. Prayer is the ultimate expression of intimacy with God. It is the already but not yet restoration of what we lost in Eden here and now. And prayer always starts with intimacy and it always bursts forth in mission. If you prioritize prayer in the church, You get the kingdom in the city. That's the story. And it's a story that goes on, not just on the pages of an old scroll, but goes on in every life with the audacity to put prayer back at the very center. And what I find is that I quickly become spiritually exhausted and overwhelmed when I take the fruit of the kingdom and I confuse it with the king himself and I allow something good but lesser to sit on the throne of my inner life. A mentor once said to me, Tyler, I love my wife, 
but I did not marry her as a child-raising strategy. I married her because I love her. And the fruit of our marriage is children. (laughs) Intimacy bears fruit, but it doesn't work the other way around. Our lives are about intimacy. Fruitfulness is the collateral damage of that intimacy. And some of you might find yourself spiritually exhausted because you've moved the fruit of the kingdom into the throne that only the king sits on. And you've turned a relationship with Jesus into a really well-intentioned project, like a social justice project, or an anti-anxiety project, or an inner or outer healing project, or a self-discovery project. You've been trying to experience the fruitfulness of the kingdom without intimacy with Jesus, and you're exhausted. Our lives are about intimacy. Fruitfulness is just the collateral damage. You see, if it's the kingdom we want out there, it's gotta be about the presence in here. And when I say in here, I'm not talking about this building. Uh, What I'm talking about is our bodies, our imaginations, our morning routines and our weekend rest and the last thoughts that pass through our minds before we doze off at night. We must become people of prayer in our everyday lives. We must learn to tabernacle in the language of the scripture. In an era that is known for kingdom productivity, we have to be people who say, the church will not forget prayer on our watch. And when I say prayer, I don't just mean making a list of requests and then interceding. I do mean that. But I also mean gratitude and praise and confession and contemplative silence. I'm talking about the whole gamut of intimacy with Jesus. We must be people who say the church will not forget prayer. Not on our watch. The tabernacle of David is alive today in anyone and everyone willing to make the radically audacious commitment to it that David made. So this, today, it's just a biblical picture about the inseparable, interconnected nature of prayer and mission. And that's a theme we're going to plunge into for nine weeks after today. First zeroing in on prayer in the name of Jesus and then on mission in the name of Jesus. Uh, This is not a vision I'm trying to cast for a bunch of big, loud, emotionally manipulative, hyped worship gatherings. So chill out, don't worry. The vision is people that are sustained by the presence of God all week long, both privately and publicly, in early morning walks and on loud Sunday experiences, when we sit around the table with our community and when we go about our workday, saturating our lives in the Trinitarian life. And this is not a new vision for Bridgetown Church. It's a continuation, the next step along the same vision we've always had, practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland. All of the practices that we spent half a decade learning, they were all ultimately about turning our church and our tables and our individual lives into tabernacles, into places where God dwells. They are all, all of it is just a means to that end. The end is to live always proximate to the presence of God by the power of the Spirit and be transformed into people who are then like God and into a community who is like God and into people that behold the face of Jesus, not just in euphoric moments and gathered worship, but in ordinary moments in the faces of our neighbors and coworkers and friends and strangers and then lay down our lives in sacrificial love for those very people. This is not a new vision, it's the same vision. It's another chapter or another step along the same vision. There's so much more that could be said, but the story's enough for today. A biblical picture to find ourselves in, to hold in our imaginations, maybe even to allow to become prayers on our own lips. 
Because the glory of Amos prophecy is that the early church brought it off the pages of scripture and into the world. I mean, this promise from Amos, it came alive in secret meetings and underground basements. Communities were formed that put prayer at the center of God's people and then the kingdom spilled from those little places into the streets of the city outside in a way that the world has never recovered from. And the tragedy of Amos prophecy is that after David, there was a next generation of political advisors that just went back to scheming along the same old ways. And that after Jesus reenacted David's entrance into the temple like a foolish king, there were priests who just cleaned up all the money that was spilled on the floor and put all the doves back in their cages and got back to business as usual. That after Jesus was crucified and the temple curtain itself was ripped, that a priest went in and sewed it back up and just kept the same thing going. So what might happen if we, like David, had the audacity to say, prayer is our only strategy? Here is our cutting-edge, innovative plan for reaching a spiritually suspicious, emotionally cold city who distrusts institutions and dismisses churches. We're going to bank everything on prayer and find out if God is still who he says he is. I wonder what would happen. Honestly, can't say for sure, but I can tell you that there is a pattern. If you prioritize presence in the church, you get the kingdom in the city. So I'll close with this. Uh, a close friend of mine, Pete Hughes, who you all know as well, uh, pastors our sister church, KXC, in London, England. He got to visit the Outer Hebrides a couple of years ago, and that's a, an ancient revival site from the 1950s. It might be the last time that there's a widely told story about a time that David's tabernacle was raised up in a community on the earth. And so he, he went there, and he was so excited to uh, pray on that holy ground. He went there to recapture, maybe bottle up some of the magic and bring it back with him to London. And then seven days later, he caught up with me and his big takeaway was this, that the ground was a whole lot more ordinary than holy. And that praying in the Outer Hebrides felt strangely like praying in London. And in a way, that was a letdown. But in another way, maybe it was better. Because if God hears ordinary people in an ordinary place like this, maybe there is no magic to bottle up and bring back home. Maybe there's just the same God offering the same invitation to any ordinary people foolish enough to take him up on it. And if God writes stories like those among ordinary people, could God still write a story like that among ordinary people like us? Could the biblical story be something that we don't just reflect on, but live into? It's been said that when the pressure's on, in the most defining moments, we do not rise to the occasion. We fall to the level of our training. And for that reason, I've got this picture that hangs in my office. It is of the Valley of Elah. So that's the Valley of Elah. You'll know that biblically as the place where David defeated Goliath. You know that story. Everyone knows that story. The little boy took down the warrior with his slingshot. Preparing himself for the fight of his life, though, David did uh, turn down the king's cumbersome army, and he strolled down into the, to a brook that was right in the middle of that valley, in the valley of Elah. Now, Israel was on one hillside, and the Philistines were on the other hillside, and there was this valley in the middle. It was kind of like uh, a sports stadium or an or arena with stands ascending on either side, and then a valley in the middle like a playing field or a soccer pitch or whatever. All eyes were down on the valley. David, unarmed and unarmored, picks up five smooth stones from a stream right there in the middle of the arena. Can you see that picture in your mind? Uh, there's, there's two hillsides and a valley in the middle. 
Uh, on one side, you've got the Philistines who are so sure of their victory, they are taunting Israel daily. On the other side, you've got Israel who are so afraid of, of this new challenge that they're cowering in fear for weeks, waiting for someone to respond. And in the middle, you've got a little boy picking up rocks from a creek. Now, Eugene Peterson says, the scripture never tells us directly that David knelt but he had to have knelt because there's, there's a certain quality of rock that you have to get to fit a sling. So he had to have knelt down to find the right rock. So I want you to see this scene. There's two hilltops and a valley in between. The Philistines and Israel looking on this boy in the middle. Two hilltops, valley in between. The Philistines representing the world on one side. So certain of their victory, of their progress of their plans in each new generation, and you've got the people of God on the other side, so afraid of every new challenge and every new era of every new generation, and in the middle, you've got a little boy on his knees. The most ancient and recognized posture of prayer. Maybe he was something like a sign to both, to the world and the church, of the way God gets his work done, of the way that God secures victory. This is my dream for us as a community, that we might be foolish enough to kneel down unarmed and unarmored and say, God, make us a sign to the world and the church and anyone else who cares to notice of the way you still get your work done, the way that you still secure victory. So Christian walked into my office last week and he, he was like, yeah, man, I've always noticed this picture on your wall. What is that? I was like, oh, it's the Valley of Elah. It's where David defeated Goliath. And he said, huh, kind of underwhelming, isn't it? Could have been anywhere. And I was like, yeah, I know. I was disappointed when I Googled it. <laughs> but maybe that's not a letdown. Maybe it's the very best thing. Because if God could do something like that through an ordinary person in an ordinary place like that, I wonder if God's just waiting on people to take him up on his invitation in other ordinary places, like this one. J. Edwin Orr said, whenever God sets about to do a new thing, he always sets his people praying. So I've got this dream for the church, the radical reprioritization of prayer. And a yes to that kind of kingdom looks a lot less like gritting your teeth and it looks more like a king dancing in a priest's underwear. And it looks less like gritting your teeth and it looks more like a savior with a supernatural smile across his face on a donkey half his weight. And it looks less like intensity and a whole lot more like joy. Hey man, you want another seltzer? So I'm sitting in this sticky Irish pub reading Amos' promise at a bar. And I walked out and I prayed a prayer I've never stopped praying. Oh God, raise up David's tabernacle in me, in us. Let this not be a story, but an invitation.